welcome to AC Podcast, sponsored by Applied Software. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and I have the pleasure of having Michael Lefevre join me today to talk about his book, Managing Design. Anything you want to say about it before we get started, Michael? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled for you all having me here today. It's, uh, it's good to be had. I'm looking for uh, any chances to, uh, to shamelessly promote this, this book. Not shamelessly. So where can we find this? So you can find it on Amazon.com or on Wiley.com. Cool, fantastic. So Michael, you know, you're correct me if I'm wrong. You're an architect by trade, correct? Yes. And then, uh, so sort of a pioneer by choice. What made you switch from architecture to construction when you did? Well, I back at back at the age of fourteen, I was working in an architect's office. Okay. And and that just to put this in perspective, that was before Woodstock. It was in 1968. Okay. <laughs> so I, I practiced in architecture for 30 years through a variety of small, medium, large firms uh, here in Atlanta with Heary International, uh, ending up as a principal in Lordex Sargent, really good firms. Mm -hmm. But seeing the, the kind of endless cycles of being over budget and a lack of profitability, I just decided I couldn't take it anymore. And I decided to just jump off the building and reinvent myself. So after having worked on a couple of projects with Holder Construction, I pitched the idea of creating this role of somebody who connects designers and builders and owners to make us work better together as teams in the quest for, I mean, for example, you know, an architect will do an incredible job doing a design of a, of a project and reduce the budget but if they're being compensated on a percentage of construction costs, they'll cost themselves money to do that. Yep. So to get in a situation where we have more leverage, more value, um, and it kind of can harness the power of more better teams, more value, more intelligence, and I decided to give that a, a shot. And uh, amazingly enough, that was 22 years ago at Holder Construction, and I, I recently retired from there to uh, get this book on the street and have started a new career now with a company called Design Intelligence, the okay. country's leading design think tank. So were there any specific hardships you really faced when you switched or made the switch to construction? Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess the, the, the first thing I'll say for anybody considering this, and, and I hope people might consider this because I think there's huge value in having the courage to getting outside your comfort zone. Yep, crossing over the line. It makes you stronger as an individual. It, absolutely, and, and your learning curve will never be as great. But what you have to, to be mindful of is, hey, you better be pretty confident to get outside of your, your own comfort zone. you got to have some skills. Number two, you're probably going to get rid of a lot of political capital. I certainly did. Went from being a senior guy in a design firm to being the lone, one-of-my-kind, different fish in a very different pond, stranger in a strange land, uh, the guy who was there to disrupt things and change things yep. within a very successful company. So you got to be prepared for that. But if you do that within a company that has a good culture and you're all working for the same end, then uh, for me, it's been an incredibly rewarding. Did you find thing. being that disruptor was sort of a lonely position? At times, yeah, very much. But you know, the, if, if you're with a company with a common mission, you're going to build some allies and they're going to have that same mission to do that. So um, 
you know, if, if you want to be a crusader and a change agent, you're always going to face that. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what's interesting is you have to find your own balance between the amount of time you spend doing what you're good at and doing what you love doing and the amount of time you're willing to crusade, fight, generate Eventually you conflict. have to let go of what you're good at and focus more on the To change. a certain extent. But, but I, I will challenge that by saying that's one of the reasons I made my move because I realized I was better at uh, making rules and breaking rules and following rules. So I, I allied myself with a team who was very good at getting from A to B, managing the business, managing the risk. So I, it gave me the perfect opportunity to do what I was good at, design, creative things, collaborative things, and these cross-industry connecting things. And I never mm -hmm. set out to do that decades ago it's just where you found yourself yeah it's just just what happened so then so, what made you write this well i i just couldn't take it anymore <laughs> you had you had to share the gospel exactly no it, the truth is um when you get to a stage in life and you've been at it for four five six decades you start you start seeing your perspective and your trajectory you know get the asymptote starts to come and you say i think i might be on the downhill slide of my career and you start thinking about what am i going to give back what am i going to leave behind am i going to leave the campsite better than i found it and um you know all those kinds of legacy kind of thoughts is the word for it mm -hmm. you say you know i've done a lot of stuff some people have told me some of it's been been okay i think it's time to kind of capture this and share this and that coupled with the fact that over the decades I really did become a student of the game and capturing writing borrowing um, largely through the power of computers and technology to be able to grab information share reuse exchange so writing was not a new thing to me okay. but it just kind of kind of got to be the right time and place and I was lucky enough to have company support also who said you know we will you still have to get your job done, but we'll, we will I'll support do your doing this. And uh, so it was kind of a perfect storm to make it happen. And so these are sort of made up of interviews, correct? There's a lot of interviews yeah. that you went on. Um, the So, you know, well, one is, you know, you said you made the switch from architecture to construction. One had to do with just the budgets and the schedules and everything. So why do you think architects are so bad at being able to keep up with the the schedule and the budgeting? Well, Did you figure that out when you when you wrote this? That's the unanswerable question. <laughs> the The original title of this book was "Managing Design?" Question mark and other oxymorons. And and the publisher Wiley said, you know, you have to get rid of the question mark. That's that shows uncertainty and weakness. And and number two, no search engine optimization is searching for the and word question. oxymoron. <laughs> so you got to be confident and and short. But. Um, Chris, what, what I realized early on is, uh, and at first this this was about me and my journey, but I realized very early on in, in trying to get to your question, is it was not about me, mm -hmm. it was about we. And I had to include all these other voices. Um, and that, when that light bulb finally turned on, I said, you know, I've got to include the voices of designers, contractors, owners, trade contractors, students, teachers, technologists, strategists, academics, uh, owners, everybody. And I, I, it also struck me like a two by four on the side of the head that 
I had to stop talking to my old buddies who were 60-year-old white guys. And so I broadened the demographic. I became more diverse. Yep. And so the conversations got richer and, and better as I did that. So that, that was kind of the first breakthrough. Which is so critical because for whatever reason, this industry seems you can silo yourself very quickly. Oh, yeah. And there's, you know, on one hand, there's a need for that as it gets more vast and more complex. You, you can't, you have to say, I can't be good at everything. Yep. And what, what I, one of the things I learned is, uh, you know, we need people that are, that are siloed and very good at special things. But that, because of this complexity, we now need people who are connectors and translators. Mm -hmm. And this role of design management, you know, I certainly hope that architects and designers will get better at doing it themselves. Yeah. I hope that contractors will get better at it. I hope that owners will get better at it. And maybe there are these specialists within any of those entities whose job it is just to translate, connect, and get at what, what is the core and probably still unanswerable question, which you asked a minute ago, which is why can't we do this? And, and what I, I think I knew this before I started, but what I really wanted to do is help other people understand this. And the reason that, that designers are not good at of doing these things is because uh, it's their job not to. Sure. They go to school. They're genetically... To be creative. <laughs> selected to be creative, to get out of the box. Yep. If they were good at getting from A to B in a hurry, they would have been managers. They would have been accountants. They would have been contractors. Mm -hmm. uh, do I want contractors designing the buildings? Absolutely not. But those very strengths that contractors have on getting from A to B quickly, efficiently, and, and doing what they're told is precisely what makes them great teammates for the design cadre who are, you know, there is no right answer. We can always generate more options. We can always go on. So mm -hmm. these, these and, and one of the things I try to share in doing the book is that you cannot just swoop in and apply traditional management principles to the design process. It does not work because yep. there is no one answer. Uh, so it, it, it's this whole thing about sharing and transferring understanding. The more that owners and contractors can understand how design process works, the fact that we're supposed to go in circles, we're supposed to go down blind alleys, come back to where we started from, uh, and knowing that, they can support that. So it's, it, this book is largely about empathy. It's about harnessing the power of others. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by the Bridging the Gap podcast. They're on a mission to seek out conversations with AEC, MEP, and manufacturing industry experts who are helping drive the changing technological landscape. They will empower you to transform industries by championing innovation. So join them on their journey. As each episode, they sit down with an industry expert who can help bridge the technology, productivity, and efficiency gap into the future. Visit bridgingthegappod.com for more information and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So it's interesting you mentioned that. So, you know, there's a lot of our delivery methods that sort of um, go against the idea of collaboration. So say a design, bid, build type of delivery method. But then there's these others that we have that we often practice. We have design, build, and we have IPD that comes up all the time and no one really seems to um, really grasp it. I think there's reasons for that. But when you were doing these interviews, did you have any stories or talk to any owners or any, that really were benefiting from those fully collaborative delivery or project delivery methods? 
Yeah, there, there are a few leaders who are doing that contractually, and they're seeing the benefits amazingly in my more than 50-year career. I, I have never had the chance in any situation to work with a contractual uh, shared incentive contract. Call it IPD, call it what you will. Well, and part of the problem is always going to up till now is the insurance part, the liability. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's always what's kind of preventing everyone. See so these like IPD light things where there's some shared incentives, but not the insurance. You know, we, we had a, in my two decades at Holder, we always had an interesting perspective and it was applied mainly to, to BIM, but I think it would apply to these new forms of contracts. We said, you could get so, if you were an insurance person or a lawyer, you could get so worked up and afraid of, of the new, and what does this mean for ownership and insurance and liability, that you would be unable to function yep. or do anything. So we took a very different attitude. We said, what have we got to lose? The way we're doing it is not wonderful now and is fraught with all kinds of fragmented issues and inconsistencies. So we would try, let, let's share a BIM model and not worry about who, who owns it. Let's see how it works. Let's trust each other. And we had great success by doing things and see what happened and then letting the insurance and the lawyers follow behind. Now, if I had gone to law school, maybe I'd have a different opinion, but, you know, I'm a design guy and yep. a collaboration guy. So. And a disruptor. <laughs> and a disruptor, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I've sort of looked through this and I feel like collaboration is one of the sort of the main themes of the book. And so... I'm curious, as your opinion, as you've gone through this and just in your own experience, do you think we're better at collaborating now where the technology is, or has the technology allowed us to be worse at collaborating? And what I mean by that is we can now work remotely. I can work in a different office. I don't have to be next to you anymore. Do you find that technology is actually a hindrance or a help when it comes to uh, collaborating? I think that's one of those great yin yang questions because without technology, I can't get on a on a webinar with you with one click of the button. I did. I was listening to Terry Gross from NPR, a mm -hmm. great interviewer yesterday, and she shared that almost all of her interviews are done by phone. So were mine in this book. I got on a Skype meeting. I clicked on one button, recorded the whole thing, and the as she talked about the advantage is you're not confronting people face to face with some of these tough questions or personal questions. So technology made that easy, painless, one click. And then I would transcribe the interview. Technology, so so technology lets us share information, do all these wonderful things, link people globally who are because that's how we're practicing because we need so many experts. Yep. But you know who wouldn't want to be face to face? You gave me the choice today. I wanted to be here in person with yeah, you. Makes it more comfortable. Um, so in these abilities, you know, my my wife and I, she she was upstairs working in her office and I was in the basement and she's, you know, we're there in the house and she's texting me, you know, can I go get something at the store, you know. So you get these kind of issues and you say, this is nuts. Yep. So you just got to be mindful of it and you got to be kind. And I, even I, as a, you know, I have some efficiency in me, some of those engineering nerd aspects. And so I'd be setting up a meeting and I'd be shooting out a bunch of emails to people about all the things we have to do. And our great relationship managers would come and say, no, we got to go. Let's let's get in the car. Let's get on a plane. Let's go face to face. I said, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. We cannot cannot lose hold of that. So I think it's it's you know, of. it's an art. It's a science. Yeah, because I do think firms have to actively make sure that their team members are engaged and participating. 
because although technology is great for collaboration, it also can alienate you very quickly. Um, so, you know, as you've talked to these different professionals, collaboration is probably the most critical part of it all. How are you seeing, how can we be better at collaborating in an industry that's still very contentious? I mean, it, it, yeah. it's still sort of an architect versus contractor. And normally it's contractor has the owner's ear. And so it's still a very contentious industry most of the time. How are you seeing us getting better at it? Or what do you think we need to do to get better at collaborating? I, you know, everybody heard this in school, probably got forced to do one class in collaboration or deal with something with sociology. And many of them were probably very uncomfortable and hated it because you know, I used to jokingly say, we got in this business, I got in this business, I'll make it personal, because we didn't have to deal with crisis. We weren't in the emergency room, we weren't in a lawsuit in the courtroom, we just got to draw lines and deal with inanimate objects and make shapes and forms and build them. And, and that was true, that was why I got in it. But surprise, there's human beings involved, so yep. we have emotions and conflicts and all those same things. So I lost my train of thought where I was going with all that. Oh, so so if I had to say, in, in going through this book mm -hmm. and in my career, two things that I've I've preached, and I sometimes I still feel like a voice in the wilderness, but if I had to say two things that would improve that situation, well, I, I'll, I'll add a third at the end, and and the third I don't want to dwell on. It goes back to your issue of contracts and incentives. Mm -hmm. Hardly anybody I know in this business gets is, is in it because they love contracts but when the contract sets us up to be adversaries then we have no choice yep uh, I, I did an interview with one of our superintendents and he and he that's the first thing he mentioned that stunned me he said you know when, when our contracts when we're on the hook for the schedule as a contractor and then the owner or the architect comes and says hey we'd really like to make this change we have to by contract say happy to help you do that but here's what it means to the schedule mm -hmm. because that that's the rules of the game that were set up yep. now if this were a three-way shared incentive project we could look at each other and say can we make this happen what does it mean what do we adjust here to hold the schedule and so on and so so con you know everybody would agree contracts are the most influential thing it sets up the liability the money the motivation all that and that's kind of what leads it to a contentious industry still. yeah but but, but I, I set that aside because I don't wake up in the morning to worry about contracts. So what I what I really want to talk about is is two things: making the time to have a planning phase at the beginning of the project, and then an important part of that is making the time, forcing the time, being intelligent about it to get to know our teammates. Yep. Because what do we do now? We we do the whole project. It, it starts. We're already behind the eight ball. We have to start ordering materials, get the drawings done, get out in the field and get going because the owner waited too long or it's just too late. We didn't have any time to plan. We, we start, I never took the time to get to know you. I don't know who you are, where you're from, what you like, what you dislike, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses. And we get all the way through the project. At the end of the project, we have a party to celebrate that we somehow survived. A topping it. out party. <laughs> and we have a topping out party or a building opening dedication party and we have beer and wine and drinks and we and we we finally get to know one another and I find out that you know what is it you and I went to the same school or, or we both played the drums you know I mean 
why didn't we do that when we started the project? Very true. You know, we would have a much different relationship. So taking the time, making the time to do that is huge. And it sort of addresses the forcing yourself to have a planning phase, not just on the interpersonal side, but to set up uh, going to the to the technical side to set up protocols for how we're going to exchange information. Do mm -hmm. you have this software? Do we have it? What infrastructure do we have? Do you have training on it? And in the early days of uh, building modeling, we had to bootstrap lots of partners. You yep. know, we maybe we had identified them already as being a potential dance partner, but the project started, and we were you know would go on the road and preach about these success stories. How we bootstrap these people here. Try this software. We'll teach you how to use it. And by the end of the project, we had transformed the the organization of a trade contractor or an owner, a partner. So. Um, if you're not intentional mm -hmm. about collaborating and getting to know your people and then setting up a plan in which you you plan out your time, you plan out your budget, your program. I'm, I'm getting into preaching about the book here. And, yeah. and that's how it all started. There were, there were five tangible things that I asserted that you could measure if you wanted to manage design. And they, I called in the early days, I called them the project controls. And it was the program, mm -hmm. the budget, the scope, the schedule, and the documents. So, okay, I, you know, as a designer, I know that design is amorphous and it's jello, and sometimes you miss schedule dates and you backtrack. But if you set those things down in stone, they're tangible. You can see them. You can measure them. You have a. And now, if one changes, if if the owner changes the scope by adding three floors to the building, that's probably going to have an influence on those other things. And this this delicate balance needs to be adjusted. And then as, as I got into the book, this whole thing kind of uh, morphed. And what I realized is, okay, those are just the hard, tangible aspects. Yep. But if we don't have that foundation of trust, collaboration, the kind of interpersonal dynamics and all those things, then, then none of them are worth what they're, they're written on because you don't trust me. You don't believe it. I'm the contractor. I've been yelling at you as a designer that this is the budget. And if you don't believe me, if you don't trust me, We've wasted our time. Yeah. Or if I don't trust you, let's say I do the budget. If you trust me and we've established that relationship, you know that I believe Mike. I know he's done his homework. Mm -hmm. and he says this thing costs X dollars a square foot. It does. If you don't trust me, you're going to spend weeks analyzing my budget, yep. challenging it, testing it. Now you're not getting your work done. You're redoing my work. So what is the value of having taken the time, plan, build trust? Would you rather spend it up front? When you're you're early on that influence curve, we have a huge impact. Yep. Or would you rather say, I'm too busy to plan, I'm too busy to take the time to get to know my people, and just rush into it headlong, and then get to the place where I would venture to say 99% of all projects get where they are, in fact, once again, over budget. And now you've got to spend all that time undoing it. Yep. Well, it all goes it. that saying, you know, something along the lines of um, failing to plan is planning mm -hmm. to fail. Um, you know, when you were talking about getting to know your uh, your team, it brought me up or reminded me of something. In your book, and I don't know the exact title, but you had a, um, a chapter where you talk about engineer, basically the engineer mindset, and the fact that yeah. they're always kind of last last to the table. Uh, do you see, or have, as you've gone through this, do you see firms that are actually getting better about incorporating them at the right time? Or you know, where do you see we need to go so that that engineer doesn't feel like they've been left out, that they're, you know, behind the eight ball all the time? 
I do see firms getting better as as our the world of design and construction gets more complex. You know, when when we did buildings, we knew in school that if you plant a tree on the south side, it's going to shade the building, and you're good. Now you need to have energy analysis software, run the numbers, show it to the client, comply with the energy code, make sure it meets budget. You probably want to have that visual so everybody can see it, not just data after data. So we got many more technicians and gurus on our team. So anybody who doesn't bring them on early is is really the dummy in the process. Um, I, I learned so much in, in having enough sense to involve the engineers. I, I chose two engineers in this book who were two of the smartest people that I know. They both happen to be based here in Atlanta. Well, uh, one has actually moved up to uh, New York in the Northeast, but uh, the structural engineer was a guy named Kurt Swenson, has a PhD, and his his accounting to me of how he has to read his audience with situational awareness. Does this client, you know, and, and he used the analogy of a waiter. Mm -hmm. You come into my restaurant, you're a group of businessmen, you just want to eat your dinner, do your business, and be out of here in 20 minutes. The next group comes in, they're, they're, they're on a retreat, they want to have drinks for two or three hours, party, tell jokes. He's got to read his client because he's not in the lead. So he's got to lead from behind, follow, and, and if he sees that somebody's not leading, mm -hmm. then he has to have the courage of speaking up and say, wait a minute, what's our plan here? We're going down this road and nobody seems to be in charge. Yep. So he's got to have the, the courage to do that. Uh, and the other fellow is Dan Nall, again, a, a fellow in the American Institute of Architects, ASHRAE, engineering, lead, sustainability. This guy could design the most hybrid, unique solution for anything on the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. But having practiced as a consulting engineer, he, he shared that, you know, for his survival as an engineer, not being necessarily in the lead, even if he was in, in the table, at the table early, he said, if somebody just wants me to do a spec office building and put an air handler in the mechanical room and move on, then frankly, I could give a bleep what the global vision for the project is, yeah. you know, because that's the rules of the game that they've set up, and he has to follow that. So yep. fascinating for me to learn more about how the world looks from there perspective. Was and there any, you know, so you interviewed a lot of people, was there any one interview that sort of stood out as you, you know, really insightful, something that you really took away from in, of, wow, I, I didn't know that? Um, well, or I, your favorite interview that maybe you... Yeah, it's it's, it's hard to, to pick a favorite, but but one that really stood out was, was one with Dave Gilmore, my new colleague at Design Intelligence. He had worked in the software, technology, banking, mergers, and acquisitions field. Mm -hmm. He described to me how when they were going to do a $100 million software merger between two banks, they brought all the players together, something like 100 people in the room. And they got to know one another for a month mm -hmm. before they ever started the work. And I said, wait a minute, what did you just say? He said, oh, yeah. And I said, you know, in, in my world, in the world of design or construction, the principals would be saying, you need to get billable hours. You need yep. to start doing something Keep productive. Going. We can't do this. And I told him, I, I used to preach and try to get people to come into the room for an hour, two hours, four hours, half a day to have a get-to-know-you meeting. And this guy did it for a month. Mm -hmm. And I said, we did lots of $100 million projects. And it was beyond anybody's wildest imagination to spend a month in the upfront getting to know you phase before you work. And what did they do in that phase? Everything I talked about earlier. Set up the protocols, developed common goals, got to know one another, 
worked out all the technology. And if they had some stubborn old, whoever it was, trade contractor says, listen, I don't work that way. He said, you know what we did? We exited them. Not, said, you exited the team. You exited them? He said, yep. We said, you're not going to work out here. We gave you two or three chances, and, and you're not getting what we're saying here. We're a team. Yeah. We're truly a team. So bye-bye. I loved it. So I'm not sure if I'll ever be successful at getting somebody to take a month to do that, but that's my that's my dream world. I I have a couple more questions. One, you know, it, it's not super related to even what we've talked about. I was just curious if it's something you've come across. And you may have during these interviews. I I pay attention or I, I like to pay attention a lot to the multi-generational workforce. Uh, maybe it's because I'm a millennial and I get picked on a lot. So I, I find it fun mm -hmm. to see. So perhaps during these interviews or just in general, um, I feel like there's a huge impact. The multi-generational workforce it impacts the firm culture, which also can impact the collaboration of it. As you've interviewed these people and you've talked to these different firms and you've worked elsewhere, are you seeing where people are actually acknowledging that? I would say most of the big design firms, and I'm most familiar with them, um, quite a number of them are going through a design process, re-engineering or firm reinvention. Mm -hmm. And that is, on one hand, to find a new process, but I think on the other hand, it's to accommodate the different generational work styles. As the, as the baby boomer leadership generation, the, the folks that are my age and older are experiencing what, what our, our team at Design Intelligence says is going to be a, a mass exodus in the industry when that leadership goes and the way we, you know, the old timers say, well, you know, Jason's a good guy. He really knows how to use that BIM software, but he doesn't know how to put a building together. Yep. Is the old expression. No. So I, I would come back from conferences and I, and at first I stole this really good idea. I said, you know, I found this thing and it's called reverse mentoring. Mm -hmm. So you, you young person needs to sit with the old person who knows how to, detail and design and put a building together and and you can teach them yep. more about the software and they can teach you how to practice well well that was the comeback <laughs> that's exactly the perfect line you you teed me up they said mike that's a great idea this reverse mentoring thing but would it be okay if we learned something too yeah and so we we realized yeah it's got to be a 360 thing and it's peer-to-peer -peer and it's circular and it's all directions and it's not just necessarily Two people, it's, you know, technology enabled and humans and socially enabled. It's got to be in new ways. But, you know, there are a couple of people in the book who've talked about, and, you know, I think people have been saying this for generations since the caveman, yep. expressions like, you know, these kids today just don't get it. Well, the fact is technology has changed and, it, and it's changed the, the people. So now that I, when, when I was giving birth to the, my BIM department of 20 some people, you know, I, I'd read the management books that talked about management by walking around. Mm -hmm. So I'd get up and, and go stand there next to them and, how you doing? What yeah. are you working on? Lean over their shoulder. And, you know, shockingly, they, they responded back and said, no, actually, I'd rather have you send me an email or text me because I'm deep in some code here. And, you're and I don't want to be disrupted. <laughs> so, so everyone has their okay, in. Okay, I'll try to respect that. Yeah. And, you know, so I tried to learn, and and but you find the balance. So I think people are working that. Uh, on all those things, more remote work. Um, the other complaint that, that follows right behind these kids today is 
they don't have the values. What do you mean you're going home at five o'clock because you have to go to your child's soccer game? I didn't get to do that when I was in my 20s. You know, where are your values? You should be a stupid idiot and work till eight o'clock like I did. You know, and so we said, you know, that gives me great hope. That means this generation is already smarter than we are. They're going to find a way to balance and figure it out things and use tools and use each other in some new you know, I had a great interview with uh, Errol Wolford in here who talks about gamification mm -hmm. and, and the way it, it allows current generations to collaborate and share in ways that, that we never could because we didn't, we couldn't work on central data. We couldn't At swap files time. that way. So, so that's, a, that's how technology is changing mindset and behavior. I do think, uh, and this is not just the architect or the AEC industry, I think as we move forward, there's going to, I think there's going to be a large gap, just like you sort of alluded to, because there are the, a lot of the baby boomers, there's a lot of the millennials, but, you know, there's a lot of those Gen Xers, that middle gap, those people that left the industry during the Great Recession that never came back. Yes. And so I think it's going to be critical for firm survival to be able to, you to pass all your information on down to me, because there's that sort of middle gap that, quite frankly, doesn't exist anymore. Um so I have, you know, one more question, and it's more of, I don't know if it's in your book, uh, but it's a forecast. And I'm curious to see where do you think as a whole, the industry, where do you think we will be when it comes to collaborating, managing design, say in 10 years or 2030, 2050? I mean, do you think we're, like, can you see there's going to be another version of you with the same book trying to say, guys, we need to be doing this? Or do you actually see us making progress forward? And I know that's a loaded question. I'm just curious. Well, I, I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is that it's been hundreds of years in the making and, you know, we're still laying bricks one at a time and we still have the sort of our cultural built-in biases between designers and contractors. Is it getting better? Yes, absolutely, already. And I think it will be. I just read a great paper uh, and it was, it reminded me and you, you, you know, the, this is the standard slide in any BIM conference, the flat line of AEC industry productivity over the last hundred years compared to all industries, all others, including farming and yep. pig farmers and straw bay choppers and hay, bay, hay, straw bales of hay. Um, anyway, we're the last industry to get it, to capitalize ourselves, to use technology to change. And I think it is happening. Uh, we were chatting earlier about prefabrication, modularization, industrialization that has come to the airline industry 30 years ago, come to the automobile industry, come to all other industries except largely for design and construction. So, and, and I think, uh, you know, so the technology and all that stuff and the capitalization is going to help us. And then th this very same article was talking about how increased collaboration is going to contribute 20% of the of the change and 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 design process. So there's two or three of these things on the soft side of the equation mm -hmm. that are anticipated by the by the gurus to be required to make this happen. So yeah, I see uh, I think that's my hope, you know, is that we're we're happier, we're more collaborative that my my poor colleagues in the design profession who love what we do so much, but have just gotten themselves into a position of commodification mm -hmm. can make the kind of incomes that they deserve and can learn how to articulate that to owners. 
yep. and get, you know, as I mean, this is one of my great eye-opening things working in a construction company. Everything that's that's related to the cost of the work gets passed on to the owner in cost as cost of the work, mm -hmm. and rightly so. It's their building. So, you know, if the marketplace dictates the project manager or superintendent should have a, uh, a rental car as part of their compensation package, that's what the construction industry has as a, as a benchmark. And all owners will say, okay, fine, if that's what it takes. Yep. I can't imagine any design firm having the skill set to pitch successfully the idea of their principal. His car should no. be paid for as cost of the project. We give our work away for free. <laughs> yeah. So we got to get better at selling, uh, defending our value, restoring the confidence as, as the design community. And we can learn from our construction colleagues who are good at that or, or get more people within the design community who are better uh, value proposers, better sellers, better communicators, and be mindful of that. This is one of the... You know, we never had this, we never, no one ever used this word in school, the notion that the act of design is a risk-inducing proposition. Mm -hmm. Think, things are status quo right now, and I come in as a designer, and I want to do a new building. I want to change the shape. I want to change the order of things. Every decision I make induces risk. We're never taught that. And, and the ability to better manage that risk and make those decisions with pros and cons or economic aspects or sustainability and life cycle aspects. Contractors are incredibly good at it. You know, they, they sh should we build it? Should we uh, excavate this, this trench and lay the soil back or should we shore it? Evaluate the options, price it, do it, manage it. Design communities as well. I just thought that was cool. I just thought that was beautiful. But, you know, we got to be able to phrase that in a better better way and, and communicate that. Well, Michael, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, tell everyone, where can they get this one more time? Where you go? You can find this new book on Amazon.com or on Wiley.com. And if you do it, I'd, I'd love it if you put a review on there or share your feedback mm -hmm. with me via, via email. Thank you so much for having me. This has yeah, been a lot I've of fun. I've enjoyed it, Michael. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the AEC Disruptors. Please like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star review. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. The AEC Disruptors is produced and directed by me and edited by Alyssa Chartier. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright Applied Software 2019.